Well, I have to say I'm feeling especially thankful and grateful this morning for not only is it my daughter Maggie's 18th birthday, get to celebrate that later. Oh, you got you got applause. Man, that's more than I get. Um, it's her 18th birthday, but as we've been thoroughly reminded this morning, it is also the celebration of the Reformation. And as I got into the office this morning, I walked right to my door and I was stopped dead because across my door were all these Reese's. Reese's Candies, which I have to think, because some of you know my love for church history, I have to think the Reese's were for the theses. I don't know who did it. I'm very appreciative. Just one minor correction, if I am right. Last I checked, there were 95 theses, but I had 100 Reese's. Five extra, just make that note. Any rate, yeah, lots to be thankful for this morning. But that's actually not how we're going to open the sermon. That was just on my mind as I walked up. All right. Changing gears. I want to open with a question. A friend, what do you do? What do you do when you mess up? I, for one, am not great when it comes to birthdays. My wife is already laughing. In college, Aaron flew out to visit me back east and it, is, it was a beautiful fall weekend. We enjoyed walking the campus. We enjoyed a fall football game. We'd had a great time. And yet on our last day, Sunday, I began to sense that something was amiss. We'd been to church. We were back at the dorms. And yet as we were there, she grew a bit more distant. She grew a bit more withdrawn and I'm racking my brain, and I'm thinking, all right, like, what happened? We were doing so well. Did I say something? Did I do something? And then it hit me, and I froze, and this pit welled up in my stomach like the size of Texas, because in that moment on Sunday afternoon, I realized it was her birthday. And I had nothing she had flown all the way out to see me on her birthday. I had no card, no gift. And the reason why she felt a bit withdrawn was because in that moment she was realizing that I had nothing. And so I frantically start thinking, all right, what can I do? I don't have a car. Nothing's open on campus. And now I've hit like full panic mode. And there was a moment where she stepped out of the dorm for a little bit. And I went right through my closet. Just anything <laughs> that the Lord might provide in my closet. And in the back of my closet, and I hate to tell you this, but it's true, I found an old Fig Newton <laughs> and a mag light. And she came back, and I pulled out that Fig Newton, and I took that mag light, I jammed it in, I rotated it, and I said, Babe, happy birthday. I wish I could say birthdays had gotten better since then. I wish I could say my engagement, the proposal was better than that. That's for a different sermon. Point being, friends, I was not particularly good at birthdays. I had messed up. And I had messed up hugely. And so, of course, what do you do, right? When you mess up, you try to make it up. There are profuse apologies. There are flowers to follow. There's some elaborate date night that's planned. But, of course, now we're going to be separate for a couple months I eventually recovered, but only because my wife has learned to be exceptionally forbearing. But friends, we mess up. 
In relationships, yet we mess up. We mess up all the time. And we all try to make it up in some way. But friends, what happens when you mess up with God? What happens when you mess up that relationship? What do you do when you wrong him, when you offend him, when you even rebel against him? Is there any way back? What would that even look like? Is there an elaborate prayer ritual we have to follow? Does it involve a sort of more disciplined time and, and communion with him? Do we, do we need to attend church more regularly? Do we need to offer up perhaps some financial gift? What is the way back if there is even a way back to God once we've messed up? Friends, that's the question I want us to be thinking about as we turn to Isaiah chapter 40 through 42 this morning. Isaiah 40 to 42. So let me invite you to turn there. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seat backs before you, and you can find Isaiah 40 starting on page 599 page 599. Now just to bring us back up to speed, when we left off Assyria, uh, last we left off, Assyria was pillaging Israel, leaving all but Jerusalem a smoldering ruin. Hezekiah had cried out to God, and, and God had miraculously smoked that Assyrian army all while Israel slept. They had done nothing. God had done everything. And yet, as we read, the nation again became proud, and in chapter 39, we closed with, the, with that crushing announcement that the nation would one day be defeated by Babylon, that the people would be exiled, that the royal bloodline would in fact be cut off. You know, in chapters 1 through 39, we held uh, before us, there was that promise of a coming king. There was this coming king who held royal titles, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace in Isaiah 9, a king from whom would rise out of the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11, one who would reign on the throne of David. And yet now as we enter into book two, which is really chapters 40 to 55, no such king has yet emerged. It clearly wasn't Hezekiah. Destined for exile, such promises of a king appear hopeless. Is God done with his people? Is there any way back to this God? Doesn't appear so. You know, back in chapter 6, Isaiah was commissioned into his preaching ministry. And if, if you remember Isaiah 6, remember his sermon. His sermon was, hear, O Israel, but do not understand, see, but do not perceive. Isaiah was called to preach until their ears were deafened and their eyes were blinded. And for how long, Isaiah 6? God said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and the Lord drives the people far away. That's not exactly the kind of feel-good sermon people want to hear, but God knew their hearts. And now, years later, where do we find Israel? So just we're going to start here. Flip forward to 42, verse 18. Chapter 42, verse 18. Thinking of Isaiah 6 and the sermons that he had preached, where do we find Israel? 42, 18. Hear, you deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? He's speaking there of Israel. Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. 
the Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Friends, do you hear in that right there the fulfillment of Isaiah 6? The fulfillment of Isaiah 6. God had given his people his word, but his word might as well have been a closed book to them. They refused to hear. They refused to heed. And so what? They're plundered. They're looted. They're carried away just as Isaiah prophesied they would be back in chapter 6. And don't miss who was behind this. Who gave up Jacob? Verse 24. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? Right? This was the Lord's doing. For his people had sinned, and how had they sinned? Well, they sinned consciously. They sinned willfully by not walking in his ways. And notice, how did they do that? By not obeying his word. Friend, here we find one of the simplest and yet most profound aspects of true religion. Our relationship with God hinges on our response to his revelation. Our relationship with God, it hinges on our response to his revelation. Will we accept it? Will we submit to it? Will we cherish it by obeying it? See, Israel wouldn't. They rejected it. They may have been religious, but that did not make them righteous. Friends, maybe you've come and you would consider yourself, you know, increasingly what many do in America, a spiritual person this morning. You know, maybe you've come and you seek to connect to God through nature. Maybe you look for signs through horoscopes. Maybe you meditate, perhaps engage in mindfulness techniques as, as you pursue your own bespoke spirituality. But friend, I don't want you to miss this. According to God, truly spiritual people obey Scripture. It's that simple. Truly spiritual people obey Scripture. And to obey it, you must know it. And the, one of the ironies is that we live in an age that sees itself and prides itself on being increasingly spiritual, and yet we also live in an age that is increasingly ignorant of the Bible. Friends, for God, those two things are not possible. Spirituality along ignorance with Scripture. There is no true spirituality apart from knowledge of, again, an obedience to the Scriptures. You just can't obey what you don't know. So friend, if you've come this morning and you're not a Christian, Genuine spirituality, you want to know where that begins? That begins 
by encountering God through his word. By encountering it through his word and especially the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Spirituality begins right there by embracing this word and by hearing it much as you're doing right now, listening to it, hearing it faithfully explained and faithfully applied. But friend, if you've come this morning and you are a Christian, you understand yourself to be one, and yet you have little interest in this word, little interest to read it, little interest to understand it, to obey it, to order your own life around this word, it may be because you don't actually have it, genuine spirituality. Maybe like Israel, you've deceived yourself into thinking you are in fact in God's favor when you are rather destined, verse 25, for the heat of his anger. Now God, at this point in Isaiah, has every right to, be, to end his relationship with his people, right? If we were God's counselors, we'd say, hey God, you know what? You've given this people enough opportunities. It is time to start over. Pick a new people. This group, this bunch is hopelessly faithless. But friends, God... We're going to see he's not like us. When God makes promises, he keeps them. And so as we look to these chapters, I want us to note three things about God that gloriously shape his own relationship with his people. Three things about God that shape his relationship with his people. We're going to think about God's commitment, God's character, and God's chosen. His commitment, his character, is chosen. In which each one of those, I want us to be asking a question. So with God's commitment, the question I want us to think about is, does God want to actually restore his people? Does he want to? With his character, is he able to? With his chosen, how will God restore his people? All right, so first let's think about God's commitment. God's commitment, right? Jerusalem will be destroyed. The people will be deported but does that mean that God is done with his people? Right? To put it another way, as I just said, does, does God even want to restore his people anymore? Look back to me at Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or her forced labor, you could also translate that, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. 
gone up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's stop there. Friends, just when we would expect to hear words of condemnation, instead, what do we hear? We heard words of comfort. Verse 1, comfort, comfort. And who is Isaiah to comfort? Don't miss this. My people, says your God. My people, my people. After all this, after all Israel had done, the promised land lost, the temple would be sacked, apparently a people without hope and without God, we find out right here somehow they are still God's people and He is still their God. After all the ways Israel had refused God, God had not refused them. All the ways Israel had rebelled against God, and yet God had not rebelled against them. All the ways Israel had rejected God, and yet God had not rejected them. And instead, what do we hear in chapter 40? We hear God calling out to them, consoling them, speaking tenderly to them. Oh, Christian, what a God we have. Who is patient like this? Who is tender like our God, long-suffering as He is? Nobody is like this but this God. And this God is our confidence in life. Friend, your confidence, I hope you see, if you are in Christ, your confidence is not in any kind of job you can secure. It's not in a kind of bank account you can build. It's not in the bodies we sculpt. It's not in the marriages we make. It's not in the children we raise and cultivate. Our confidence does not waver with political wins and losses. Our confidence does not even finally waver with the growth or health or decline of this church. Our confidence is that we can call ourselves his people, and he is still our God. Friends, many of you may recognize these verses because of Handel's famous Messiah. You know, every Christmas in Washington, D.C., uh, my wife and I, it was our custom to hit the Kennedy Center, and we'd go and we'd hear Handel's Messiah. You know, Aaron and I don't miss much about D.C., but we do miss that. That is one thing we do miss. Friends, if you're familiar with, with uh, Handel's piece there, don't let that familiarity dull you right, to the wonder and the beauty of what's here. Isaiah's ministry began with a ministry of judgment, Isaiah 6. But now as book 2 unfolds, it is a message of consolation, of comfort. A message that they yet remain, verse 1, God's people. That their iniquity, verse 2, is pardoned. That they are forgiven. That God, verses 3 and 4, is making a way for them back home. That His glory should be revealed to them, verse 5. And that any of humanity's feeble attempts to thwart God's purposes are like grass that withers and falls before the word of the Lord that endures forever. 
right? An eternal word that God has given to them. That is their word for them. And that, don't miss this, verse 10 and 11, that this God is coming for them. He's coming for them. And he's coming in power. He will rule. And he's coming in gentleness, tending his flock like a shepherd, right? Gently leading the young, we read. This comfort, friends, if you haven't caught it yet, this is what we call gospel comfort. This is gospel comfort. Sins forgiven, access to God restored once again, God's glory being revealed, God breaking into the world, coming for his people, redeeming them, leading them powerfully, tenderly, like a shepherd. Isaiah 40, here is gospel comfort. It's no wonder then we find these words on the lips of John the Baptist some 700 years later, preparing the way of Jesus. These are words for a people in exile. They're going to be hearing these words. They're written for the future when the people are in Babylon. Right, Their world has been shattered. All hope appears lost. Friends, in such moments, cheap comfort won't do. For such people, cheap comfort would be a waste of time. Not only that, cheap comfort would be cruel. But note how Isaiah comforts. He doesn't come like with some pint of Ben and Jerry's. That's not how Isaiah brings his comfort. Though we can appreciate it, it's not how Isaiah brings it. He doesn't come with flowers in an attempt to cheer them up. He doesn't come with beers in order to drown out their sorrows. He doesn't simply offer hugs or trite words to the people. Right? That, we would say, is cheap comfort. We might even say, given their circumstances, that would be cruel comfort. No, Isaiah comes here with rich biblical truths from God. That's the comfort that he brings. So if you are here this morning and you long to be a comforter to others, you long to be a counselor to others, friends, I hope you're beginning to see it is essential in order to do that well that you know the Word of God, that you know the Word of God. Knowledge of the Word, that's not just for especially spiritual people, that is for all of us who would seek to counsel God's people. So maybe ask yourself, ask yourself, when you seek to comfort another, how often do you seek to comfort them with Scripture? How often do you come and is your comfort Scripture? How often do you recite to them rich biblical truths? Right, God's Word, well, that's what puts God's people back together again. But just imagine for a moment that you're a surgeon. Imagine you're a surgeon, and yet you go to the surgery, and instead of a scalpel, you pull out a butter knife. And instead of sticking your patient with some anesthetic, right, you hand your patient like a little stick and just say, yeah, I, I know, bite down on this. And instead of sutures, you reach into your drawer and what do you pull out but a big roll of duct tape. And imagine doing that surgery. Friend, when all is said and done, what do you think that person would look like? How well do you think they would feel? Would you have, in fact, made them any better? Or would they look like something out of some horror Halloween flick? And yet, is this not what we do when we seek to counsel others, when we seek to do them spiritual good without the Word of God? 
That's something I just have to say I've loved about John Henderson's ministry among us over the last year, how much when he offers counsel and brings counsel, it's counsel according to the Word of God. How in his Equip the Counsel class this past week, two and a half hours spent on biblical methods for understanding the Bible, right? How do we walk through the Bible? How do we understand God's Word? Friends, we have to know that because genuine comfort begins by bringing God's people His Word. So I ask again, does God want to deliver his people? 41 to 11, inexplicably, and yet wonderfully, yes, God wants to deliver his people. He brings comfort to his people. But is he able to deliver his people? Well, that brings us to our second truth, God's, not just his comfort, but his character. Secondly, God's character. Because it's one thing to want to help someone, it's quite a different thing to be able to help them. And remember, where Israel is going to be, they're going to find themselves in Babylonian captivity. So by the 6th century B.C., the Persian Empire would become the largest empire known to date. Nearly 50% of the world's population governed by the Persian Empire. So no empire before, not the Egyptians, not the Assyrians, not even the Greek Empire to come would rule over such a large portion of humanity. So take the United States. We're the dominant player, many would still say, in the world stage, right? 5% of the world's population we rule over. Persia, nearly 50%. It's astounding. And it's that empire that has Israel in bondage. Israel is in their capital. Their situation would appear even more hopeless than when they were stuck in Egypt. So is God able to deliver them? Well, let's continue chapter 40, picking up in verse 12. Chapter 40, verse 12. To that God would say, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are all accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it with a goldsmith, overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, 
when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why then do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded, or you could read it, ignored by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Is God able to deliver his people? Absolutely. A resounding, yes, God is, this God is able to deliver any people and do anything that he chooses. Right? It's this God who rules over nature. I hope you picked up in these lyrics, uh, rather, I hope you picked up in these words, the lyrics that we sang earlier from Behold Our God, taken right here from Isaiah chapter 40. For this God alone is able to, he's able to lift the seas with ease. He's able to hold them in the palm of his own hand. This God alone marks out the heavens. You know, on a clear night, if you're at altitude, no light pollution, the human eye can see maybe 2,500 stars, it's estimated. Maybe 2,500. Constellations and all their grandeur, those 2,500, they can stop us in our tracks. They can silence us. They put us in awe and wonder. And yet our galaxy just in one corner of the universe, the Milky Way galaxy, it's estimated that galaxy has 400 billion stars. And yet if we step back even further and we try to estimate all the stars in the known universe, every galaxy, billions of light years away, that number is over a septillion. That's one with 24 zeros behind it. You see, the sky has more stars than all the beaches of the world have grains of sand. Technically, friends, that's just a ton of stars. It's a lot of stars. And God's saying, hey, you know what? I gather them all in my hands. Every single one of them. I gather every one. Not one is missing. And you know what? I can call each one by name because I created them. I established them. I hold them. That's who this God is. It's why he's able to rule over not just nature, but the nations as well. He says, verse 17, the nations are as nothing to him. So if that's true, O Israel, why would you fear the Persians? If that's true, fellow American, who has placed so much hope in this country, hope in nation that God regards apparently is even less than nothing, verse 17. Because it's this God who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, verse 23. He, notice he doesn't even need the lift a finger. 
He merely has to blow on them, verse 24, and they wither. You know, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 or so B.C. to the Babylonians, that would test Israel's faith more profoundly than any other event in the Old Testament. And the temptation was to believe that God was powerless before the Persians, that indeed the Persian Empire determined the course of history. They ruled over half the population of the world. But according to Isaiah, Persia determines nothing. God had written the script. They're merely playing the part he is having them to play. And my Christian friend, this God is not just Israel's God. Friend, this is your God. This is your God. You need to behold this God. You need to fall on your knees in awe of this God. We need a vision of this God more than a change of scenery. We need to behold God, right, in all of his divinity and marvel at it. Is that not what Job needed? If you know the story of Job, in all his suffering, tremendous suffering, Job thought he most needed his circumstances to change. Job thought his circumstances were the problem. And yet when God finally shows up, after all those chapters, God says to Job, no, 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 no. It's your view of me that needs to change. You don't know me, Job, and that is your fundamental problem. Friend, is it any different with us? I mean, we read chapter 40 of Isaiah, and it almost seems foreign to us. Right? We've so domesticated God, we've remade God into our own image, and Isaiah is calling us to lift up our eyes and to behold him to marvel at him, to embrace him, to trust him, because there's none like him. Friend, how can one despair with a God like this? The danger is not, of course, that God is going to prove inadequate. No, the danger is that our faith will, in fact, prove inadequate. Because it is always so much easier to lower our view of God than it is to raise our faith to him. Israel thought that God had abandoned them. That's what's actually being picked up in verse 27 when we read that uh, they say their way was hidden from the Lord, that my right is disregarded in that it's ignored by my God. So they're tempted right there in verse 27 to believe that their suffering had somehow escaped God and that even worse, maybe God's ignoring them in their plight. But God is calling them instead to wait on him as they trust in him. Verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. You know, if that expression, wings like eagles, sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it harkens back to the Exodus, Exodus 19. And right there, God is saying, Israel, as surely as I delivered you from Egypt, so I will deliver you from Babylon. You need merely to wait upon me, to know me and to trust me. God lacks neither the power nor the will when it comes to his people. Friend, you may have come this morning and you may feel like you're in your own impossible situation. And it may feel to you in that situation like God has abandoned you, that he's disregarding and ignoring you. Friend, I hope you see that God 
God can, he can see into the heart of situations in ways we simply cannot. And even if we could begin to see into them, we could not appreciate them for what they are. As Isaiah will later say, right, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Our inability to discern our current situation doesn't mean there is no divine discernment at work. Our inability to see any point or any purpose in what's happening doesn't mean there is no point or no purpose to what God is doing. In the famous words of Spurgeon, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. But of course, that's hard to do. And the temptation will be to forget, right, to look elsewhere to help for salvation. And so for Israel, where would they look? They look to the gods of the rival nations, which is why God will go in chapter 41. And what he's going to do in chapter 41 is he's effectively going to summon the nations and their gods before him. And he's going to unleash this barrage of questions. 41 verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? That one from the east is a veiled reference to Babylon. Who raised up Babylon? God's going to say, not their gods. Babylon's gods can't even stand. Chapter 41, verse 7. You read there sarcastically, right? The idols of the world, they have to be nailed in place and secured by human hands. How can a so-called God who can't even stand possibly rise up and save a people? They, of course, can't do it. Or look forward to 41.25. 41.25. Again, God calling the idols to, to the, his judgment bar. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, right? Isaiah said, do anything, right? That we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north. Again, a reference to Babylon. And he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. He who declared it from the beginning, that we might know, and beforehand, that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. See what God is doing. He's saying, listen, the idols can't speak. They can't tell you what happened in the past. They can't even tell you what's going to certainly happen in the future. I alone am the one who can do this. Which is why the constant refrain in chapter 41 is fear not. 41.10, with this God, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 41.13, fear not, I am the one who helps you. You can read the same in 41.14, fear not, 
you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Right? With God by their side, Isaiah wants them to see they have nothing to fear. Christian, with this God by your side, you finally have nothing to fear. There's nothing too great for God, nothing too big for him, nothing too tough for him. God is never in a situation scratching his head, flummoxed and confused about what to do next. He's never left pondering his next move, which means there's nothing God can't deliver you from, and there's nothing he won't finally deliver you from. Does God want to deliver his people? We already seen that. Yes, absolutely. Is God able to deliver his people? Without a doubt. Which brings us to the third question. How then will God restore and deliver his people? And now we move from God's commitment to his character to God's chosen. God's chosen. How will God restore his people? It's one thing to want to save them. It's nothing to be able to. It's another thing to say that he intends to. You know, I mentioned in book one, chapters one to 39, we're introduced to this king. And yet in book two, chapters 40 through 55, this king appears, but he's in different guise. He's in different dress. He is rather presented to us as a humble servant. Israel was to be the chosen servant. God had saved them in order that they might serve him. And yet we've seen time and time again, Israel failed at that calling which is why in 42 we're introduced to a new figure. So look back to 42, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Well, sadly, that's not what the Lord can say about Israel. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you, speaking of this servant, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So stand right there. How can God redeem his servant Israel when they have been so unfaithful? We're seeing right here, God is going to redeem them by raising up another servant who would be faithful in Israel's place. And unlike earthly kings, in all of their pomp and all of their circumstance, this servant's not going to cry aloud. He's not going to lift up his voice. Right? He's often going to minister quietly and in the shadows, away from all the lights, away from the flashing cameras. And unlike earthly kings who rule out of their own strength and wisdom, the source of this servant's strength will be the Spirit of God. 
and the instrument of his rule will be the word of God. And unlike earthly kings who serve for their own benefit, he is rather given himself as a covenant for the people, a light for all the nations, right? Giving sight to the blind and and setting, we read, the prisoner free. We're seeing how God will save through a servant. And who is the servant that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 42? Well, if it sounds familiar, it's because we read some of this passage earlier. Emily did in Matthew 12. Right after giving sight to the blind, right after giving hearing to the deaf, Matthew 9, we read of one who is gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew 11, one who heals the people and is yet rejected by the people, Matthew 12. And so Matthew quotes after that Isaiah 42 with regard to this servant. And immediately after this quote in the Gospel of Matthew, what happens? If you keep reading, this servant takes a prisoner who is blind and mute and sets him free. Matthew couldn't be any clearer that this chosen servant Isaiah speaks of is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Friend, if you are not a follower of Christ this morning, Isaiah is trying to help you see that you cannot save yourself from your sins any more than Israel could save herself from Babylon. God alone saves. And he will save not only his people, but all of the nations through his servant. The one who has pardoned us and forgiven us of our sins by dying and suffering for us on the cross in our place. And the one who rose from the grave and in doing so who defeated sin and death. Only Jesus can deliver you from that prison of sin. Only Jesus, this servant, Isaiah is saying, can set you free. And so God would call you, if you have not trusted in him, to trust in this Christ, in this Messiah, in this Savior, by turning from your sin, repenting of it, trusting in him. He can save, and he's a glorious Savior. And for those of us who have trusted, perhaps most beautifully are those words in Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, Remember, Israel had leaned on that broken reed of Egypt, Isaiah 36, 6. And in leaning on that broken reed of Egypt had become the bruised reed of Babylon. But even there in Babylon, in all of her weakness, in all of her humiliation, Jesus would still not break her. Though she was but the sputtering wick, barely a flicker of light, Jesus would not put her out. You know, the great Puritan Richard Sibbs, reflecting on these verses, noted that sometimes God will bruise us in order to remind us that we are but reeds and not oaks. Friends, if you are feeling bruised this morning, could that be God's, actually, his gracious reminder to you that you are yet still but a reed and not an oak? Could that be God graciously teaching you to lean on him and not the things of this world? Perhaps not yourself. Such bruises, when they come from God, are a kindness to us. For better to go bruised to heaven, friend, than to go sound to hell. 
But others of us can feel, sometimes we feel bruised to the point of utter despair. You know, you may be holding on to Jesus by nothing but a thread this morning. That may be all you have. Maybe all you have. The fires of your spiritual heart, right? Those might be but a sputtering flame, right? Barely any heat, barely any light left. You need to hear 42.3, the bruised reed Christ will not break. That sputtering flame, he will not snuff out. Right? Your sins may lie heavy upon you, which is why Jesus came gently lifting them off of you so that he might bear them for you. Your guilt may lie heavy upon you as well, which is why he offered himself up freely as that guilt offering so that you wouldn't have to bear it. He was broken, friends, so that you would not have to be. He was troubled so that you would not be. He was cursed so that you would not be. In those famous words of Sibs, there is more mercy in Christ than there is ever sin in us. We are great sinners, and yet we have a better, much greater Savior. Go to Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And in Him, you can find true rest for your souls. That ember, as low as it may be, He will yet blow on it. He will yet stir it up. Don't give up on Him. Friend, is there a way back to God? Israel wasn't so sure. But these chapters of Isaiah break with actually the first rays of hope. Does God want to restore His people? Gloriously and beautifully, yes, we learn He does. Is God able to restore His people? Unquestionably, yes. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. How then will God restore His people? Well, not by any efforts of theirs. No amount of flowers or profuse apologies will do it. No, if God's people are to be restored, he must do it. God will save them through a servant. His commitment, backed by his character, displayed in his chosen servant. That is the only hope of his people. Friend, is that your hope? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that we wouldn't move too quickly over these chapters glorious chapters and that we behold you. We recognize that we don't fathom it. We can't fully grasp. We can't even, we barely can grasp you and all your grandeur and majesty and complexity and yet you hold yourself out to us that we might trust you and wait upon you and you give us your son knowing that you are gentle and tender with your people. And God, we pray that we would cling to those truths as we walk out of here this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.